Oh, Father, we stand here today in the power of your Son, Jesus Christ, and it is through his name that we praise you, and it is through his blood that we stand here saved and sanctified before you. Amen. You may sit down. So where do you think we ought to turn this morning? Romans? You guys aren't tired of Romans? I hope not yet. <laughs> Don't get tired of Romans, because when I'm done preaching, you're going to find out if you're tired of Romans, you better meet me in the office. <laughs> Got to get you saved. <laughs> Can't get tired of the Word of God, not, not the book of Romans. All right, so I'm going to read first eight verses of chapter five. I know I've done this a few times, but ah, this is another concept that we have to, have to labor over. Labor over the Word of God, all right? I'll read the first eight verses. So much doctrine here. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into his grace, in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we praise you that while we were still sinners, your son died for us. Amen. All right. So we glory in tribulations. We talked a lot about that last week. Glory in tribulations. It produces character. And somehow the character that you gain from that produces hope in you. But verse 5 says, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Friends, our God does a lot of pouring. He loves to pour things out, right? We read about it this morning. At Simon the leper's house, Mary of Bethany took the spike knot and broke the cask and poured out the oil and anointed the Lord for his work and his mission. And they all knew at that time where he was going. And so we have... The psalmist, Psalm 133, that talks about the pouring out of the ointment, the dew of Hermon upon the head, upon the beard, upon the robes of Aaron. Our Lord loves to pour out. He opens the windows of heaven, Malachi said, and pours out such a blessing that there will not be room to contain it. Friends, he pours out blessings upon his people. Our cup runneth over, David sang. Our God does a lot of pouring. Jesus went to that wedding at Canaan. If you had, haven't done the math yet, let me tell you. He made 180 gallons of wine out of that much water. He loves to pour out his blessings upon his people. We spoke last week on the nature of hope to some degree. We spoke on the resilience of hope. Remember resilience? We get knocked down, but resilience is our ability to recover, and our hope does that for us. Hope lives off of certainty. Remember that, not uncertainty. It's not a hope-so kind of hope. It's a blessed hope. It, and our Holy Spirit, we'll get to this, is the guarantee 
of our salvation. Friends, this is an assurance verse. This is to let us be certain in our hearts and minds that once saved, we're always saved, and there's nothing in heaven and earth that can change that. There's nothing in heaven and earth that could have caused it. So there's nothing that can uncause it. Hope lives off of certainty. We said that it's wholly a work of God and not of us. We contribute nothing to it. It's accomplished by Christ on the cross. Friends, he was dying for us 2,000 years ago. How could we ever say we contributed to this? It's demonstrated by Christ risen from the grave, friends. It's proven by the words of the risen Savior when he said to Thomas, reach your finger here in my side. Remember the doubting Thomas, right? I won't believe unless I see him and I see the wounds. Reach your finger here in my side and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. He said to Thomas, but what did he say to you? He said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Sometime later, he added this, for John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now, I will pour out my spirit upon the church, he said. And he fulfilled it not many days from then in the upper room at Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people in a great baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you shall receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. Our God is a pourer. He loves to pour things out. In this verse, the apostle begins his Treatment of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit just makes a beginning, just a, just a first crack at it. This is the first look into the nature of that mysterious member of the Trinity. We have the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and it seems to me we know so much more about the Father and the Son than we do the work of the Holy Ghost, as we used to say in my day, or the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that pours out the love of God into our hearts. That's what the verse says. The Spirit of God pours out that love, and that love in there creates that hope. It's that love that is the witness of hope, and hope, Paul assures us, does not disappoint. The end we hope for, the resurrection of our bodies, cannot be thwarted by forces either in the earth or in heaven. Nothing can snatch us out of the grip of our Savior. It is assured, and this verse speaks to the great gift of God of assurance of our salvations. Friends, we can be saved, and we can get into heaven without assurance. But I can tell you it's much more glorious on the way to just be assured of what you know and what's been written and what's been proclaimed. Jesus said elsewhere, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Do you hear his voice? If you hear his voice, you're one of the sheep. You can't hear it if you're not one of the sheep. If you're not part of his flock, you can't hear his voice. You can't rejoice the way you rejoice when you hear the scripture proclaimed if you're not one of his sheep. You hear his voice every time the preacher preaches the word. Every time you read it, the Holy Spirit bears witness to your mind. This is the voice of your Savior, and you're one of the sheep. You're one of the flock. I know them and they follow me. And what? I give them eternal life. If you've heard them, you have eternal life because you couldn't have, you couldn't have heard them otherwise. And they shall what? Never perish. Friends, get some assurance. 
Oh, geez, I don't know. I, I've been sinning. I, I haven't been studying. I've lost my salvation. I'm going to talk about that. Stop your fretting and get back to the Word and get on your knees and get back in here on Sunday morning with the saints. That's all important to your hope. And I'm going to get to that as well. I want to get to everything at the beginning, but I can't. I have to go through it. And Jesus says, They shall never perish, and neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Friend, what what is hope if not assurance? You are in the mighty grasp of Almighty God. You cannot be snatched away. And you can't be snatched away by your little doubting conscience. You'll just go to heaven fretting, but you'll get there because you didn't cause it in the first place. So you might as well go with assurance. You might as well come into the throne room boldly knowing you were invited because you heard his invitation, because you're a sheep and you heard his voice. Assurance is the gift of God, friends, and it's poured out by the Holy Spirit. And that hope brings us joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength, Nehemiah said. The joy of the Lord, and so that joy must always be connected with that constant witness of the love of God in our hearts. And that witness cannot be in us apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look into a little bit here about the nature of the Holy Spirit and of his ministry. And I'm hope to unravel a little confusion this morning by some. But Paul, who will develop the doctrine later, in, in, the, in the epistle, is speaking here of one very important first installment in our understanding of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? What is his role? What is his ministry? What is his work in our lives? And he makes that first statement here. He pours out the love of God into our hearts, and hope grows out of it. That's the power of hope, which refers to the gift of assurance in the believer. <clears throat> Now, I've heard criticism, maybe you've heard it, of the teaching of the church today concerning the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. It seems to me that the work and ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and notice we want to say God the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is God. He's a co-equal, co-eternal member of the Trinity, just like the Father, just like the Son. They don't operate independently, they operate together. If there's an operation of God going on, the Holy Spirit is involved in that. But sometimes we approach this subject in what I would say is a scripturally unbalanced way. We're not balanced in our thinking. And what do I mean by that? Well, there's this abiding element of mystery in our understanding of the Holy Spirit and his ministry. Of the three members of the Trinity, surely the Holy Spirit is the one that we have the least amount of doctrine on, or that we focus least upon, it seems to me. I mean, there's great books written on the Holy Spirit. There's no lack of doctrine on it. It just seems to me we're always talking about the Father and the Son. But the Holy Spirit has a place here, and and Paul is introducing his role to us here. All right? And so what is that doctrine? That doctrine that I speak of is conclusive and defining truths. That's what doctrine is. Conclusive and defining truths. Your doctrine on a subject is your conclusion on a subject, having considered the whole counsel of God on the subject. All right? And I don't think it would be wrong to say it that way. We, we have much more understanding 
about the person of the Son and the person of the Father, it seems to me, than we do about the person of the Holy Spirit. We train on much more explicit truths regarding the first two persons of the Trinity than we do the third. And maybe you don't personally, but I think overall in the churches we do. And maybe I'm part of that. Maybe I'm guilty of that myself, but I'll rectify it this morning. And I'll add that there's perhaps more disagreement about the work and ministry of the Spirit in the church than there is of the other two. There's so much disagreement. Oh, God told me this. God told me that, people like to say. Oh, God did this in my life. Oh, and then he changed his mind and he put me over here. And people have all these things that they say is the work of the Spirit. Now, I have to tell you, friends, I believe in miracles. I get accused of not believing in miracles because I may not believe in your miracle. But I'm not required to believe in your miracle, right? I hope you have a miraculous encounter with God in some great way. I have had them. I have been miraculously healed by God, all right? I believe in miracles, but I only have to believe in the ones that are written, all right? Just to point that out. So there's some disagreement about the work and ministry of the Spirit, and more so than the work and ministry of the of the Father and the Son. And I'd like to demonstrate that to you by simply asking you a series of questions, my little quiz this morning, all right? Um, I want to ask you if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you believe he was born of the Virgin? Do you believe in his miraculous life and his love and his healing? Do you believe that he was delivered up to the cross and he died for our sins? That he was buried in the tomb? That he rose again the third day? That he sits at the right hand of the Father and that he'll return to gather his elect to himself and to judge the world for their sins? (laughs) Then you pass the test. You know everything about Jesus, or a lot, a lot about him, right? Do you believe that he was in the beginning with God and through him all things were made and without him was nothing made that was made Amen. We do believe that. Our doctrine of Jesus Christ is good. He was fully man and fully God. The deity of Christ, the blessed humanity of Christ. We have it all understood. And I knew you would all pass. I don't suppose that in this company there'd be too many people that didn't agree with that. But if you don't agree with that, get in my office. And I wonder how many of us know that Not only could Jesus not have done all these things apart from the attending power of the Holy Spirit, but neither could you believe those things about Jesus if the Holy Spirit did not do his own special work in you to enlighten your mind to the conclusions of the gospel. A.W. Tozer once said, and I'll probably butcher it with a paraphrase, but he said something. He said, for you to understand a verse of Scripture, He said, it takes a work of the Holy Spirit equal to the work he did to inspire the prophet to write that word in the first place. The Holy Spirit inspired the writer of the word, but for you to understand it, there has to be a work of the Spirit in you. And if that's being done, friends, then you know God. You're one of the sheep. So in short, friends, if you know Jesus... You know him because the Holy Spirit has presented him to you. You thought Pastor Dan presented him to you. But it was the Holy Spirit all the time. He's given you the, let's call it the spiritual equipment. Doesn't Paul use that term? Doesn't he say, equip the saints? So you got the spiritual equipment to know things that are otherwise unknowable. Do you know Jesus is God? You can't know that apart from the Holy Spirit doing a work in you. 
It's foolishness to those who are perishing. If it's not foolishness to you, then two things. You know it's true, and you're not perishing, right? That's called assurance. Get some. So he's given us this spiritual equipment to know things. There's no knowledge of Christ apart from the mind-expanding ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. The world would have you believe that your faith makes you dumber than you used to be. They call it blind faith. Friends, my faith has eyes. My faith is not blind. My faith is not fate. Close, but no H. No, my faith has eyes, friends. Our faith gives us greater mental acuity than we had before we were Christians, not less. It doesn't make us quaint. It doesn't make us old-fashioned and, oh, aren't they nice people? It makes us strong. It makes us more than conquerors. It makes us realize the, the only thing in life, finally, that's worth realizing, that Jesus Christ is God and died for our sins. So if you know Jesus, you know him because the Holy Spirit has presented him to you. But it seems to me that those who focus on the person of the Spirit focus on the miraculous. Have you ever noticed that? My friend, uh, Pastor Neil, once a long time ago, he said, we're going to teach on the Holy Spirit today. And he says, I know everyone in the room thought, we're going to preach on tongues. You bring up the Holy Spirit, it's all about tongues. Friends, he does so much else more. But I'll deal with that too, if you like. They focus on the controversial aspects of his power, and certainly it's controversial because when he was poured out at Pentecost, everyone spoke in tongues, but everyone doesn't speak in tongues all the time through the 2,000 years that have happened from then until now. The Holy Spirit works in different ways at different times, or as the Baptist Confession says, in divers ways and in divers manners. Divers means diverse, but that's how they said it in those days. We cannot seem to speak of the Holy Spirit without talking about the sign gifts. The speaking of tongues, the imparting of power by the laying on of hands of the apostles, the wind and the fire of Pentecost, the power to convert souls with a a word or to heal a lame man with a touch. And certainly all these things are true to the nature of the person of the Holy Spirit. And yet I would warn, That to speak, to seek rather, the Spirit of God for His power alone, to magnify the Holy Spirit, to claim for yourselves the power to impart health and healing by the Holy Spirit may well be all the evidence we need to determine that you have little or no understanding of who He is at all. And I want to clear some of that up for you this morning. The Holy Spirit, friends, is not in this world to glorify me. That much I can tell you. All right? He glorifies Christ. That's his ministry. It seems to me the major reason why the Spirit remains mysterious and seems to be in the shadows is because it's his primary ministry to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and not to exalt himself. It's kind of crude, but he's a gentleman. (laughs) He takes the lowest seat when he comes into the, the feast, right? I'll say that again because I blocked the mic. He'll take the lowest seat when he comes in and wait to be asked to move up. It seems he's the the gentleman of the Trinity. He's quieter. And so when men exalt the Spirit of God and claims all sorts of powers through him, we can be certain of one thing, and that is that the Holy Spirit is not with that man because the Spirit doesn't exalt himself. He exalts Christ in us, the hope of glory. There's a distinction there. Remember this story from the book of Acts. Chapter 8, we read of Philip the Evangelist. Remember Philip the Evangelist? All right. 
And he went into Samaria. Great revival broke out through his preaching. Go back and read chapter 8 of, uh, of the book of Acts. We read some of it on, on Thursday evening. Um, and so Philip's preaching the gospel to the people there. And many believed and were baptized. And Peter and John got word of it. They were in Jerusalem. And they, they heard of the great revival among the Samaritans and said, I got I to get down there. So they got down there and, and they came there to minister Philip was performing miracles by the Holy Spirit and signs and wonders and doing all these things. And the apostles began laying hands on those who confessed Christ and the Holy Spirit was imparted to them. And in that time, the evidence of his presence was palpable in new converts. All right? But there was another man present. His name was Simon. Maybe you remember about Simon. All right? And when Simon saw, and I'm I'm quoting now from Acts, when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money saying, give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, friends, not everyone has that power. All right. Now you know where this is going because you can't buy stuff from God for money. What does he care about money? You ever hear someone say, he's got more money than God? First of all, it's not true. And secondly, God has no need of money, friends. He has another currency. It's called omnipotent power. So give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Friends, he's coveting a gift that's given to someone else in the first place, right? But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Friends, envying someone else's Holy Spirit power is not right with God. Envy is that poison he's talking about that's destroying his witness. Repent, therefore. He gave him a chance. (laughs) Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of those things which you've spoken may come upon me. And he didn't say this, but this is what he was thinking. And I have no more need to try to get the Holy Spirit power that you have. I'm content that God gave it to you. If he didn't say that, he didn't repent. The Spirit of God may not be coveted for demonstrations of personal power. All right? He may not be subject to performing for the purposes of human glorification. Right? He glorifies Christ and Christ alone. The Holy Spirit is imparted through those whom God has chosen for that purpose. Jesus said, peace to you. As the Father sent me, I send you. And then he breathed on them, it says in John 20. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And he gave them power to forgive sins. He breathed on them. All right. He didn't breathe on me. He certainly didn't breathe on Simon. But he breathed on them. And that was his choice. That power was clearly upon the apostles. Even Philip did not have that power. Philip could preach the Holy Spirit. Philip could baptize. Philip could perform other unnamed miracles in the name of Christ. But it was Peter and John who imparted the Spirit with the laying on of their hands. So clearly there are those who make too much of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But I have to warn you that there are those of us who make too little of the ministry and power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I mean by we get imbalanced, right? I'm not trying to diminish in your minds 
the power of the Holy Spirit because it is limitless. But the scope of his power, his purpose is designed. And I'm just trying through scripture to be accurate about what he will do so that you can recognize whether or not it's him doing it. Just because some guy on TV says the Holy Spirit's doing something doesn't mean it's happening, right? Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. I have no authority to say to you that you'll be empowered with sign gifts and healing miracles as were the apostles and some of the believers in the early church. But there are several things that I will say emphatically about the power and the presence of the Spirit of God in the people of God and in the church of God for today. Some of our confusion, friends, is just our, a misunderstanding of how we categorize Scripture. Now, what do I mean by that? Some of our confusion about how the Holy Spirit operates in us is due to a misunderstanding of how we separate certain passages of Scripture and categorize them. I'm going to try to demonstrate that to you very simplistically this morning. If I were to simplify the situation, I would simply say to you that Scriptures contain passages of two sorts primarily. There's passages that are descriptive, They're telling you what happened. They're giving you knowledge. They're informing you. And there are passages that are prescriptive. They're telling you, I'm not only giving you this knowledge, you must do these things. This is a prescription to you. So there's descriptive and there's prescriptive. And we have to be um, learned in understanding which passages are which, because it matters. It matters greatly. I'll give you some uh, examples of this. Um, God created the heavens, and the earth. Descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive, right? You're not called to go out and create the heavens and the earth. God did that. You're not going to do that. I think it's readily understandable that that's a descriptive passage to inform you of something, right? That's descriptive. Moses is not prescribing that a man do what only God can do. Friends, Noah built an ark. And apart from Tony Danza... And Steve Carell, no one else has built an ark. Have you seen those movies where they build the arks? You haven't seen those? Your kids got to catch up. I'm glad you haven't seen them. It's silly. Noah built an ark. That is for our understanding of God's fierce judgment of sin. It also portrays election. Election's this big controversy today. Friends, did you ever read about Noah? People say, oh, God didn't create all these people just to destroy some. Have you ever read... Have you ever read the book of Noah? He wiped out everybody and he elected only eight. Noah is the poster boy of election, and that's not even what I'm talking about today. But he gave us an illustration of how he judges sin and how he saves the elect. Noah built an ark. That's for our understanding of God's judgment of sin. It's not to imitate Noah in this way. We don't all build an ark, right? I don't think anyone among us would say that to obey God as Noah did, I must build an ark like Noah built. It's absurd to make such a connection. Such things are a one-time occurrence for our edification and knowledge of divine initiative in history. Friends, even the flood is a one-time event. It's not going to happen again. We were talking about it on Thursday evening because that's where we are in the ancient landmark series on Genesis, talking about the flood. Sometimes you see a flood and you've got to wonder, that looks like a worldwide flood to me. Houses are floating away. But it's not. It's local. 
and it won't be worldwide. It, if you suspect that, you look up, and if you see the rainbow, you know it's not going to be worldwide because God put the sign there for us to remember. Saw a big double rainbow the other day going across Route 79. Thought I was in uh, St. Louis for a minute. It's going under the arch. Um, tough crowd. All right. Um, so we gotta, we've got to know between a, a descriptive and a prescriptive passage. And I suggest to you that's where much of our confusion begins, all right? And so what happened at Pentecost in the upper room, that's a descriptive passage of Scripture, friends. In my view, that is a one-time event. That's not going to happen again. Look at, the, look at the text. It's the baptism of the church. Um, there are several elements in it that are clearly a one-time event. First of all, they were all in one place. Friends, the church is never, ever going to be all in one place until we're all in one place in the new world, right? There's no church big enough to hold them all. They're all in one place, and they're all in one accord, and I think you know we're not all going to be in one accord. We can't even get in one accord with 20 people in, in Bible study. <laughs> never mind all the people in the world, Denomination to domination. Oh, I respectfully disagree, brother. I don't think you should uh, do that. No, we're not in one accord anymore. It's a one-time event. What makes us think this thing's going to happen over and over again? Let me help you with that. It's not. It's not because it's the baptism of the church. Now, I know you thought it was the birth of the church. Everyone wants to say, oh, the church was born that day. No, the church wasn't born that day. If you're careful in your reading, go through the New Testament, and you'll see Jesus uses the word church many times before that event right? The ecclesia. Ecclesia is the Greek for church, and it's used 70-something times in the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament, all right? The concept of the church pre-existed that event, which is the baptism of the church. Jesus said it. Uh, the Holy Spirit, who is greater than John, will come and baptize the church, and that's what it was. The outpouring, that's God pouring again, loves to pour things upon the church, it's a one-time event. It's the baptism. There'll never again in this life be a time when every member of the church will be in one place, and there's much evidence that neither will they be in one accord. The Holy Spirit came in with what? Rushing, sound of a rushing, mighty wind, we're told. You know what's interesting? It says the sound, but it doesn't say they were all blowing around in there, so I'm guessing it's just the sound, right? And there were tongues of fire on everyone's head. Clearly a one-time thing. I don't, even, I don't even think I've heard any of the faith preachers or charismatics say that they ever saw that happen again. They're saying all the other stuff happened, but for some reason they're not saying the tongues of fire on the head happened. It was a one-time event. I think they'd go along with that. And even those who claim the same sign gifts imparted that day, most especially the speaking in tongues, have never claimed fire upon their heads. I've not heard of a service where the sound of a rushing mighty wind of the Holy Spirit was repeated. I've never heard of any minister who had the power to kill liars with a word the way Peter did to Ananias and Sapphira. What about that power of the Holy Spirit? You know what I'm talking about? If you don't, you've got to keep reading the book of Acts. Ananias and Sapphira came in, lied to the Holy Spirit, Peter said, and they went down dead before him and they carried them out. I haven't seen that happen again. It seems our charismatic brethren claim those operations of the Spirit that are relatively easy to imitate, and they eschew those that are difficult to imitate. Now, Paul will develop more clearly the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in later chapters of this book. But for today, 
he'll focus upon one of the primary functions of the Holy Spirit in the everyday Christian life. And that function is to impart to the believer an unimpeachable sense of personal assurance of salvation. That's his job. It is assured because it's God in us, the Holy Spirit, whose ministry it is to impart that assurance. That's what Paul is saying. If you have the Holy Spirit, you can have this assurance. And the function of the Spirit in us is prescriptive to all believers. All believers can, this is prescribed to all of us. We can all have hope that does not disappoint. All right? Assurance, friends, is not a one-time event. It occurs over and over again in our walk with Christ. Paul said to the Corinthians, God anointed us, sealed us, given us his Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, he said. 2 Corinthians 1.22. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee. And I can tell you that guarantee did not come from Lowe's. I went to Lowe's. I bought a generator. And they said, would you like to buy the extended warranty? My wife always says, never buy those things. They're a scam. Oh, the wisdom of my wife. And I bought it anyway for 60 bucks. Came back a couple months later and they said, oh yeah, that's not done by us. That's done by someone else. I'm like, all right, well, where do I take the piece of junk you sold me? And they said, where, I didn't say that. That was very nice, you know, because I'm a pastor and everything. And so I, I said, well, where do I take it? And they said, I don't know. I said, you sold me the thing for 60 bucks. So if it breaks down, they have this extra measure of a guarantee on it, but you don't know where to take it. So that's, that's not a guarantee. That's not the kind of guarantee the Holy Spirit has. By the way, that thing's been sitting in my garage for several years now. It's, it's worth nothing. But um, it's a longer story, but I won't bore you with it. No, the Holy Spirit is a real guarantee. It's Because remember who he is? He's God. Remember my seminary lesson? Just say God. When they ask you a question, say God. And you're 75% chance of being right every time. The apostle will deal in greater detail on this subject later. But as Paul notes, any assurance that the believer has in Christ from his own personal salvation is the gift of God, the Holy Spirit. And so as we emphasized last week, there are several immediate benefits of the work of Christ in our justification. Justification is the divine process of our being made right in the sight of God and that our sins are paid for. And that the enmity that existed between God and man has been reconciled by the blood of Christ. Our alien status. Remember he said you were strangers and foreigners in the world. This alien status being banished because of our justification. Our alien status is banished. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ, he said. We've been brought near. And so our alien status is banished. Our being revealed we're, be, we're revealed now as the special object of God's love. All these are immediate blessings of faith in the justifying work of Christ in our behalf. And then we said with Paul, but not only that, and not only that, he went on to note another benefit of assurance, and that was that we the saints glory in tribulation, and as you know, I labored over that last week, and I think you get it. But now, as the Apostle likes to say, he goes further with this truth saying that hope does not disappoint. Or as the older versions say, hope maketh not ashamed. Right? 
Now, of course, the verse speaks to final outcomes. Finally, ultimately, you'll not be ashamed. You will be there in heaven. You might be surprised that you're there, but if Christ died for your sins, you'll be there. It speaks to our final glorification in the sight and presence of God. Yet the New Testament reveals that the blessing is ours for the taking in this present life. Get assurance. And you know what assurance takes, friends? It takes understanding the process. God did it, not you. You can't undo it. It's done in your behalf. And the very fact that you believe it means the Holy Spirit's in you, which means you have a guarantee. And you won't be taking that guarantee to the service desk. We may be accused of many things, friends, but our accusers cannot shame us. Our hope maketh not ashamed. We need not be ashamed of the things we suffer in this world as though some strange thing happened to us, Peter said. We're tried by fire, but hope insulates us from the torment of being ashamed of the circumstances. Friends, as the martyrs were being burnt, they were not ashamed. In fact, they were glorying. We may be accused of any things, but our accusers can't shame us. And we also know that our accusers have no access to our assurance. They can't even understand why the martyrs wouldn't relent of their confession of faith. They couldn't even understand it. They haven't been blessed with access to God. The gospel is foolishness to them. Paul says this very thing to Timothy when he, when he wrote, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. He's not ashamed. Now, that's one of those negatives Paul uses. You know, Lloyd-Jones says the English like to use negatives to, to enforce a positive, really. When he says, I'm not ashamed, he means I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of my faith. It means the opposite. It's like when an Englishman says, you know, that lady down the street was not unkind to me. It means she was very kind. Or I stayed at their house and it was no meager estate. It means it was a great manse. Maybe even a castle. You know, he says it that way for emphasis. Even in prison, even though to Philemon he referred to himself as Paul the Aged. Now, he wouldn't have done that if he wasn't getting just a little bit tired. Paul the Aged. He has this blessing of assurance. It's taken him right to the end of his age. He's, he's even aged now, right? That's the power of hope. Hope is the offspring of love and both of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. And so in a very practical way, how can we know that hope does not disappoint and that our final outcome is assured? Well, let me tell you the first step. A first step is to test your knowledge of how you were saved in the first place. And if you believe that you were saved because of some ritual that you took part in, I hope you don't believe that walking down an aisle somewhere got you saved, because it didn't. That's not how you get saved. Put away all filthiness and overflow of riches, overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul, James said, verse 121. Receive with meekness the implanted word. You know, we had a Wednesday night Bible study years ago, and a, one of the ladies who's a very good saint really understands the whole process and everything. But she told this story, and she said it was so sad because there was this, there was this nominal preacher. Um, when I say nominal, I mean he's a Christian in name. You know, I've had a few of those preachers in, in my life that, 
like uh, United Church of Christ, that kind of denomination that really doesn't exalt the Christ of Scripture. You know, it's very sort of politically correct uh, organization with a, with a cross on top. Actually, I looked, and it, there actually was a, a weather vane on top that moved with the wind, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But, um, but she told this story. That th- this minister comes to the meeting of the evangelist, and the evangelist is preaching the Word of God, and the minister had his son with him. And he said, do you want to give your life to Jesus Christ today? Do you repent of your sins? And he said, if you do, then raise your hand, hallelujah. And the kid went to raise his hand, and the father put his hand down. And the whole Bible study went, oh. I said, why is everybody sad? The kid didn't get saved. I said, you don't get saved by raising a hand. See how we get fooled? The whole Bible study was mourning for the kid. His father sent him to hell. No, he didn't. No one can snatch him out of the Father's hand, and that ain't the Father. That's the Father. You see what I mean? I used to tell a story. There was a preacher. He used to, he used to do a drive-in church, and you come up with your car, and if you, and if you wanted to receive Christ, you, you turned your headlights on. Did you ever hear that? And I went one day, and my, the fuse was out. Wanted to get saved, I missed. I had to go to another, I had to get another car, get it all fixed, and then go back and get saved. <laughs> Can you believe we, we fall for it? It's not a ritual, it's belief, it's faith. It comes from God, not from the preacher, not from the man holding your hand down. You don't have to have hands to be saved. <laughs> Friends, if you believe God saved you in the first place, but now that you've sinned and now that you've fallen away from some of your spiritual disciplines, that you've lost what you once had, your understanding is also very, very flawed. You didn't lose it. Now, this gets complicated because maybe you didn't have it in the first place, and that's a whole other issue. But if you're a child of God, and if, you, if you've been justified by the sacrifice of the Son, then you are still saved. You don't sin your, way, sin your salvation away doesn't happen. Think of what a monstrously false notion of God's love that you could have in any way caused him to love you. I want you to know you didn't cause God to love you. He didn't love you because you're lovable. He doesn't even think you're lovable. How's that? He really doesn't. He says, love the unlovely. Like, okay, I'm unlovely. You didn't cause God to love you. There's nothing you can do to make God love you or to make him love you more than he does. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less than he does. But you know why? That's not the definition of love. He just loves you because it pleases him. That's agape, right? You can't make him love you. I'll do all these things for you, Lord. Well, do them. They're good things. But I love you the same as I always have. I sacrificed my son for it. What more can I do? It's like the man at... He went into the jewelry store, and he saw this beautiful diamond. He wanted to buy it for his wife, and he just looked at this beautiful diamond, and he was agonizing over the fact that he didn't have enough money, but he so loved his wife and wanted to make this token of his love. So the the jeweler said to him, take the diamond. I'm going to give you the diamond. He said, oh, I couldn't do that. He goes, no. He said, "I I can see how much you love your wife, and I want to be part in this giving of this wonderful gift to your wife. And he gave him the diamond. The man put the diamond in his coat pocket, and he walked outside, and he thought, I should have got some wrapping paper. And he's like, but I can't go in and ask him for wrapping paper. He already gave me the diamond. 
And he agonized over it until he finally went back in and the man said, I gave you this valuable diamond and you were afraid to ask me for a scrap of paper? I mean, that's how God is with us. I gave you this and you were afraid to ask me for this pittance over here? I've shown you my grace. I don't, I don't turn you down. My grace hasn't disappeared. I've shown you my grace. You forgot it. That's your problem, but it's still there. What a false notion of God's love that you could have in any way caused him to love you. Such a thing defies the definition of what love is and what a monstrous notion that even though God saved you and your understanding on the subject is clear that you could fall from grace on your own. Remember the words of Jesus that no one's able to snatch you out of your father's hand. Lloyd-Jones writes this on the subject. Someone said to me last week, you quoted Calvin this week. When are you going back to quote Lloyd-Jones? Well, here it is. The regenerated man may sin and backslide, but he's still a child of God. Friends, look at the story of Jonah. There's your illustration, all right? In, in fact, go to Jonah. I preached a series on it not all that long ago. Everything in the book of Jonah obeyed God. The Ninevites obeyed God in the final analysis, right? The fish obeyed God. The men on the ship obeyed God. The sea, the wind Everything obeyed God. The gourd, the worm, everyone obeyed God but Job. I, I mean, but Jonah. And Jonah was the only one saved. And the rest of them all went to hell. I let's, friends, this is, once God loves you, that's it. So Lloyd-Jones says, The regenerated man may sin and backslide, but he's still a child of God. He's still a partaker of the d- divine nature. The seed is still in him and always will be in him. It cannot disappear. Another Puritan preacher, Christopher Love. Are you familiar with Love? That's his name, Christopher Love. Christopher Love was a Puritan preacher in the era of Cromwell, in the era of the uh, English Civil War. And eventually, he was accused by Cromwell's Puritan army of trying to... um, being involved in a plot to reinstate the monarchy. He claimed he wasn't, but they put him to death anyway. They executed Christopher Love. And I have to go back and I have to say, I I think I believe Love. I think if he said he didn't do it, he probably didn't do it, because this is not a man who was afraid to die and go be with the Lord, right? But that's just a little backstory, so you have some understanding. I love the Puritans, and Cromwell was a Puritan. I love them on both sides of the Atlantic, friends, but i got to tell you, they have some excesses that we can now look back at and we can work out. Um, But this is what Christopher Love wrote. In a, in a book called Grace, he said, take this for your comfort. The least measure of grace is enough to bring you to heaven. This is not spoken to make you idle, but only to comfort a perplexed conscience. And I hope it does that for you. But he goes on. Many, because their grace is weak, think they have no grace. Then he quotes Jesus from Revelation. I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength and has kept my word, and has not denied my name, he said to the little church of Philadelphia. And so Love writes this, Much faith will bring you with much comfort to heaven, but a little faith will bring you safely to heaven. Now I want to say, I want to say it this way, I want to say much faith will bring you with much comfort to heaven, but a little faith will get you there anyways. Friends, remember God began the work, he'll finish it till the day of Jesus Christ. It's God who will finish it. Paul wrote, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God working in you. 
both to will. You can't even will to do the right thing without the Holy Spirit. If you will to do the right thing, that's God in you working. To will and to do. You can't will it, and you certainly can't do it. It's all a work of God from beginning to end. Work out your own salvation. In other words, take part in it. Do something, right? But it won't get you saved. You're already saved. The Holy Spirit's in you, willing and doing for His good pleasure. It's not God who simply starts the grace ball rolling and you've got to keep it going. He leaves us to continue the work. He starts the ball rolling, but we've got to roll it the rest of the way. Friends, he takes it from beginning to end. Have assurance in this also. If God did leave it to us, there would be no one who's saved. You can't be more saved than someone else. So if you got saved, and this guy got saved, and you did a lot of good works, and he didn't do so many because his, his faith was weak, right? You're, he's just as saved as you are. Nobody can work their way to heaven. You can't complete it. Once God starts it rolling, it's the Holy Spirit that has to keep it moving. When you're backslidden and not feeling very spiritual, and then a spontaneous verse comes to your mind. Has that ever happened? That's the Holy Spirit. He's, he's in you. Who do you suppose put that thought in your mind? But here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. If that scripture wasn't already in you because of your spiritual discipline to read it or to be there when it's preached, then even the Holy Spirit won't bring that to mind. He might put you in a worse situation so that you decide to go to the Word and find a Word for yourself. But I've been walking down Crooked Lane praying in despair, and all of a sudden, you know, God so loved the world comes into my mind. Or um, that all things work together for good, for those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, and all of a sudden I'm in joy. That's the Holy Spirit. He's there to remind you that this can't break down. You can't break it down. Paul wrote this, The Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling. Your eyes of your understanding, that's your inner eye, is being enlightened by the Holy Spirit, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. John said the same thing much more succinctly. He said, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. How's that for a verse? John loves those superlatives, right? You know all things. What he means is all things necessary for salvation, all right? There's a special anointing of knowledge to those who believe, and so he adds, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. You know, friends, let me tell you a little secret about the Bible. It's written for us. It's not written to us, by the way. That's where we make a mistake, too, in the Scriptures. It's written to the audience it was intended for when it was written, but it's written for us, to all those who by their word believe in me. All right? This letter was written to the Romans, not to us, but it's written for all the saints. That's why it's included in the canon. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Friends, the Bible is for us. We're the only ones that understand it. It's the oracles of God committed to the church. We are the custodians of the precious word of God, and we must handle it rightly with care. I've not written to, the, to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. It gives you the power of discernment. The Holy Spirit gives you the power of discernment to know truth from lies. 
And so there are a few simple tests that may confirm if we have the Spirit of God. We read this, no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. Have you ever heard that test? And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now that doesn't mean you can't utter those words. We, we took the test this morning. Jesus is the Son of God, born of the Virgin, uh, died on the cross, rose the third day, right? All of the things. That's what it's talking about. You can't say that as your belief apart from the Holy Spirit in you. There's no way you could know it. It's unknowable, except it's made known to you. Great study will not get you there. The Holy Spirit gets you there. You pass that test at the beginning of my message by affirming the doctrine of Christ. You know who he is and what his attributes are. And this is a truth that can only be given by the Holy Spirit. You couldn't otherwise know it. How is it that some dismiss the gospel and the person of Christ? It's because they don't have the Spirit. So they can call Christ accursed. You hear it all the time. They're not possessed by Christ. Do you realize that you're, you know, we talk about possession, you know, spiritual possession. We're possessed by the Holy Spirit. How do I know? Because Paul said he bought us. You're not your own. Here's what he said to the, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or did you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Be careful how you handle God's property. You're not your own. And then he says, you were bought at a price. He owns you. I did a whole series many years ago. To whom do you belong? Today, everyone says, I belong to myself. (laughs) You do belong to yourself. And you can trouble yourself to get you saved for eternity, but you're not going to have much hope of it. No, we belong to God. The Holy Spirit takes ownership of us. He's in us. There's so much more evidence, not only of the existence of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, but of his residence in us. And so I offer you this one last test. I want you to pay very close attention. One last test that the genuineness of your faith may be known. John writes this, we know that we passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Friends, the church is part and parcel of our salvation, and it's a witness to us as to whether or not we have salvation in the Holy Spirit. Do you love the world? He who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Or do you love the church? The love of the Father is in you. That's John with his superlatives, just black and white. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Isn't there a joy? Like even when you're traveling and you run into someone and like we'll be sitting there at a restaurant or something, I think those people are Christians. I think they just prayed. You know what I mean? Because they they said grace at the meal, you know, and there's all these little telltale signs. And then you talk to them and it's it's like this joy comes up in you because you all know the same thing and it's like a secret. Not that you'd keep it secret, but other people just can't know it on their own. And so let me add a third rule. Remember my list of rules? You know my rules, right? You have to believe what Jesus believes. You have to love who Jesus loves, and Jesus loves the church, right? Rule number three, and you must know that both of these things are accomplished by the Holy Spirit. You can't believe what Jesus believes on your own. You have to be be filled with the Spirit. You can't love who Jesus loves on your own. You have to be filled with the Spirit. And you can't know that it's the Holy Spirit enlightening your mind unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. I could say it a hundred times to a group of people and they'll never get it because you don't get it by being convinced. You don't get it by deep study. 
You get it by the grace of God alone. And hope cannot disappoint. Once you have it, it's not going away. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Amen. Father, we praise you for the great assurance, for this blessed assurance, O Lord, that is the gift of God. Probably the second greatest gift next to salvation itself, O Lord. And we praise you for it. And we praise you for the Spirit of God who is in us and poured out your love upon us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.